HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today, all the way from Cleveland, Chef Jonathan Sawyer. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Uh, most people know Cleveland, well, at least I do, from Major League, the movie, yes. um, and Roger Newman's <laughs> Burn on Big River. Um, but as a new destination, or as always a destination for food, it's fertile ground. I mean, it's, it's not like uh, uh, it's the desert there. Maybe a food desert, but right. not... Yeah. You know. It's not the Skokie, Illinois of the, uh, <laughs> of the Great Lakes anymore. Uh-oh. So I, you I like get, to, you get uh, people up in arms <laughs> yeah, with Skokie, Skokie. coming. Yeah. Um, you know, but all, all funniness aside, we call it the affordable Chicago. Mm. And I think there is some amazing and, and tangible uh, food tourism going on right now. And I think the next uh, 10, 20 years are going to show so much more. Excellent. You're born and raised in and around Cleveland. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was raised there. I was born in Chicago. Yeah. Um, we moved when I was in, uh, you know, primary school and uh, um, went to high school there. Met my wife there. We dated in high school. Um, you know, we went our separate ways. Went to our colleges, and then when we came, when we lived here in New York, we moved back in together. Yeah. So, I mean, is there a regional cuisine? Is there a local food of uh, Cuyahoga County? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think like all of America too. Though we're we're, we're starting to really find what food works so well with our uh, in our kitchens and in, and in our homes. You know, in terms of what is Cleveland food, you know, I mean, people are going to say Eastern European, Slovenian, Hungarian, uh, Austrian, German. Um, Polish, and and then the obvious things inside of there, you know, Pirocha, Veronichka, you know, uh, Polish boy is sort of a, a modern riff on a on a Chicago style hot dog that Clevelanders are really really fond of. And then what we pull out of our lake, you know, I mean, walleye, yeah, is an amazing and underutilized fish, and even even the black drum inside of the lake and white bass, and uh, you know, you can't 
you know, you can't beat Lake, Lake Smelts either. Yeah. So, I mean, it must be nice going back home because you spent some time after school uh, working in Miami at the Biltmore Hotel, then yeah. coming to New York and working for big old Charlie Palmer. Mm-hmm. Um, CP. Yeah. And you were here at Kitchen 22. I was. And then eventually opening up Perea with Michael Simon, um, which was, what, around 2006, 2007? Um, yeah, I think that was about right. I don't know. They all sort of blend <laughs> together. I try to remember how old my kids are. You yeah. know, my son, Catcher, is uh, eight or almost eight. And I'm like, all right, so he was born yet or he wasn't born yet? <laughs> yeah, he was born. So, yeah, I think you're about right. Yeah. So, I mean... You were in New York, not necessarily your formative cooking years, but right. you were in New York, uh, and Pareo was a really cool restaurant. Can you explain it a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it was, when I met Michael, I, I was moving back to Cleveland, um, I asked CP if he knew anybody in Cleveland, and he goes, yeah, I know this one guy, this Mike Simon guy, I'll introduce you, and uh, you know, we had a meeting, and I, it, 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 fortuitous enough, Michael was opening up a new restaurant called Lolita, he was looking for a chef, I was looking to move home, and and that's how our partnership started. And uh, Lolita was like this, you know, kissed around the Mediterranean concept based on a wood fire oven, but really focusing on Mike's lineage in Greece. Uh, you know, Spinello, all these interesting modern representations uh, of Greek fare interpreted through what we can do in Ohio. And, um, you know, it was so popular in Cleveland that a uh, couple investors from New York said, you know, hey, what, what do you think about doing this, but even more Greek uh, here in New York? And uh, and that's what we ended up doing. So it was a, it was a pretty natural for me. And uh, I was able to, you know, reconnect with a lot of people that I valued from Kitchen 22 when we came back. Yeah. Well, uh, you bring up this term lineage, which I think is a really relative one to what you're doing now because not only do you have that direct connection to cleveland but you were actually just in trentino yeah yeah i was i mean whenever we're opening a new restaurant it's super important that it's uh, a representation of that farm and soil and terroir and people it's not a regurgitation of a meal that we had one time in chicago that we wanted to rip off and put in cleveland you know we're gonna we're gonna travel to paris and 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 burgundy and bone and 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 then we're gonna open the greenhouse tavern and we're gonna go to tokyo and we're gonna eat until our you know bellies explode and then we're gonna come back and open noodle cat and likewise with uh, trentino which my wife's family's from yeah i mean so this is immersive uh, education um do you see young chefs doing that enough? Do you try to get your guys traveling? Yeah. I mean, I think education is the most important tool you can use as a chef. You know, not your spoons, not your knives, not even your farmers. I think the better your cooks are, uh, the better your bowls of pasta will be. You know, it's just, uh, it's elementary. And I just sent my chef, you know, uh, Brian Goodman actually is coming back from uh, Trentina this weekend. He's been there for 40 days, um, training, trailing, learning the anthropology. Uh, going to Val Sugano to see proper polenta, going to Val de Non and Val de Sol to see DOC protected apples, helping us secure pasta allocations and, you know, everything it's going to take to open up this new, beautiful Trentina restaurant. Yes, and so Greenhouse Tavern. Yes. Uh, your first child. Um, Our baby, <laughs> yes. The concept behind it. Yeah. Uh, well, this it's four years old now. And when we opened, we were the first certified green restaurant in the state of Ohio. So, Can you say that one more time? Because, I mean, you, you said things like proper DOC allocation. Yeah. But I think green is very similar to those terms because yeah. it, it has an integrity to it. That Absolutely. I mean, for us, it was the certification. 
Certification was important because if anybody was like, well, what makes you greener than me? We can point to the wall and say, <laughs> well, it's a third-party audit that requires over 100 man-hours every year to show how much electricity, water, paint, uh, compost, recycling, you know, farm miles we use. And then we get a grade. So we're a three-star now. Someday we'd love to be a four-star. I-, I don't know if it'll happen next year or the year after or whenever, but we'll always try to, you know, uh, attain that goal. You know, I mean, I'm... For us, it's not, you know, it's not about what we do. It's about being open about it. You know, I'm, there's things that we could do better. There's power that we could source greener, and there's things that we could do to improve uh, or lower our carbon footprint. And but we're open book about what we do do. Yeah, because you don't have enough to do already. Right. <laughs> I mean, you must be one of In the my hard- spare time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, so Noodle Cat now has uh, two locations, one yes. in the historic West Side Market. Oh my god! Can you explain yeah. that market? I've never been to Cleveland and. Again, the only understanding I have it is the allegory to uh, Major League. Um, what is the West Side Market, and why is it so important to Cleveland? Well, the West Side Market uh, is the longest single-standing public market in America. It turns 100 November 3rd this year. Um, in terms of what it is, I mean, architecturally, it's a masterpiece. It's one of the top five in Cleveland, if not top 20 in America. The uh, National Public Markets Conference was just there last weekend. I mean, that's how important it is as a landmark, as a place to meet cheesemongers and butchers and uh, bread bakers. It's unparalleled. In the past 20 years, you've seen uh, a nice increase in local uh, artisans being in there, but you still have families that are four, five, six generations of the exact same butchers butchering the exact same animals, handing down the same recipes. You know, so right next to us, perfect example is one of my favorite meat smokers called Dohars. And uh, Old Man River at Dohars, uh, Mikos is his name, cut his hand the other day, okay? Pretty bad, severed his tendon, Oof. and they just closed up shop for five days. Yeah. Because he's the only one that knows the recipes. Yeah. So for five days, they were closed while he was waiting for his tendon to heal, and then he came back and they opened up again. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say if you if you want to find out what Cleveland's all about and you only have an hour, that's the best way to do it. You know, it's a combination of surly, old-world, Eastern European and, you know, proper meat fabrication. Um, <laughs> I love the word, the term proper meat fabrication. <laughs> um, it, it makes it sound so technically unsexy, but, I mean, it, it's such an important thing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I want to talk about both Greenhouse Tavern and Noodle Cat. Sure. First, Greenhouse being a gastropub. Yeah. Um, and you're talking about all these influence of West Side Market, and you see that on your menu because yeah. it's it's no one place or one thing. It's it kind of runs the gamut of uh, your flavor profiles, your taste buds, um, and I'm assuming the people that you've met along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our menu is pretty collaborative. You know, I mean, my pastry chef Matt Danko, my chef Brian Goodman, uh, even our line cooks down to our garmage guys, they all have an influence and opportunity to affect the menu. You know, so um, I think it's pretty fun when you have a restaurant like ours that you can change the menu basically every week to put a new dish on. You know, and that's and that's sort of what we do. We're not into, you know changing quarterly or even monthly and changing 10, 15, 25 items because we're going to make mistakes. But if we can change one dish every week or two dishes every week, all of us can put our you know culinary microscopes over top of that dish and make sure it's where we want it to be, make sure it's sourced who we want to source it through. And also, when it's online and you're cooking it for up to 500 people on a Friday, you know it's a little bit different than when yeah. you do it just for your chefs in the test kitchen. So 
uh, it's important for us to allow it, you know, allow ourselves to make mistakes and then uh, adjust. Yeah. So you're talking about uh, all these new dishes being introduced. What are some of them that have been really exciting and breakthroughs for your kitchen? Oh, you know, the most, I always think of the most, people are like, what's your favorite food? I'm like, well, whatever vegetables are going out of season and whatever vegetables are coming into season. Yeah. So like, <laughs> we're going out of like our corn carbonara and some of our, you know, summer sandwiches, uh, like a dad's tomato sandwich. And I think this one, everyone can recall. I just have like the fondest memory of walking out in my backyard with my mom or my dad and grabbing a cucumber and grabbing a tomato, putting it on whole wheat toast with a little bit of butter and salt. And that's the whole sandwich, but yeah. Just and this just is this execute. is at greenhouse. Tavern. This is at the greenhouse tavern, yeah. but also I, in my mind's eye, though. Yeah, but can I use this as a, an amazing segue because this is where I want to talk about Noodle Cat too. Yeah. It's on Noodle Cat's menu as it well. Is as well, it's yeah. a steam bun. Yeah, we we put it inside of a steam bun. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is just amazing because even though you went to Japan and you tasted all this food, there are things that are allegories back to your life. And there's a Roscoe fried chicken ramen. Yeah, um, yeah. who's Roscoe? Well, it's kind of poking fun at the Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles from uh, L.A. Oh, okay. So, I mean, the idea, I mean, I think the way you said it is perfect. You know, this is a personal, you know, cooking food is personal and you can't, you know, or at least I hope you can't fight the way that you feel about food and let it influence all your restaurants and all your menus or your home kitchen. And the fried chicken was an interesting one because that came out of the home kitchen, you know, frying chicken for my family one night and I... I'm extremely waste, not want not kind of person at home. You know, like, I don't care how tired I am. I'm making chicken stock after I roast yeah. the chicken. <laughs> so we fried chicken for the family. We ate it. And then I kept the bones for some reason and made a fried, post-fried chicken bone stock. And as I was tasting it the next day, as it settled down, I was like, oh, my God. The flavor of the fried chicken is really like undercutting this chicken stock. It's a fried chicken stock. What if we made a fried chicken dashi? And then what if we blanch some kale and put that on top and then yeah maple syrup hot sauce vinegar butter and then the dish just sort of exploded yeah yeah let's let's talk about a couple other of the ramen dishes you have a clam chowder style we do where where does that come from did you spend time in the northeast in new england no but i cleveland has this weird affinity for clam bakes i don't know we don't have clams near us Uh, (laughs) i don't know where it came from but it's an extremely fall tradition in cleveland to have a clam bake you know and uh, I just figured, you know, we're getting to that season now where, you know, it's okay to have a little bit of cream in your broth and it's okay to eat a couple extra potatoes as you're getting ready for the winter. So uh, it was just a natural comfort food for me. And I, and honestly, that's how I feel about noodles anyways. Uh, noodles, I'm referring to Noodle Cat. Uh, uh, I really do think it's a comforting place. You know what I mean? It's not meant to be a challenge. Um, it's it's not meant to be an education. It's meant to be fun and comforting. You have a pop up. It's called what? Brick and mortar pop ups. Yes. Um, and you've had some amazing chefs, Leanne Wong, uh, our, our friend Amanda Freytag. Oh yeah. Um, Jeff Michaud. This has introduced what kind of cuisines and what kind of locations to Cleveland. Uh, well, I mean, I think it goes back to the education thing. It's a good opportunity for us to exchange knowledge with our friends, you know, that we meet uh, in New York and Philly and Portland and, uh, you know, where, wherever it is. And a lot of times chefs are traveling or people have family in Ohio and they're like, you know, why don't I just stay an extra day and let's cook a dinner together? And we've sort of seized that opportunity. And, you know, I think 
you know, Jeff's uh, family you know, is from Bergamo, and his cooking is extremely, you know, beautiful, rustic, uh, northern Italian. And Leanne's Japanese uh, pop-up was her first one, and she did more of a mashup on the second one. Um, and then we have two coming up that I'm super excited about. Uh, Jeremy Nolan from Bra House in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. In my opinion, like one of the most underrated German chefs in America. Uh, he's doing a beer garden with us on the roof that'll be a ton of fun for Cleveland Beer Week. And then another one, Jeremiah Fox, who's a uh, Clevelander at heart as well. Um, you know, he's opening his new restaurant in Venice. We're doing one over Christmas. So it, it's just a great opportunity, I think, to expose Clevelanders uh, to different fare. Yeah, uh, Clevelanders. Clevelanders. I mean, is there any other more affectionate <laughs> term uh, to people that live in that city? No, I mean... <laughs> You know, it's it's that it's the broad shoulders Clevelanders. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's us against the world. Yeah, and <laughs> you must feel that way with the Browns. Not to bring up, uh, uh, you they're know. five and zero right now, right? Really? <laughs> Are they? No, they're no. I was going to say five. in your mind. I yeah. saw I saw uh, a little sparkle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you love that team. It's always next year. Yeah. yeah. You have a, a, a new stand at I do the Brown Stadium. That must be kind of cool. I love it, man. You know, I think between being in you know uh, historic Gateway District and downtown Cleveland, being in the West Side Market and being in the Brown Stadium, those are like three icons of my childhood. You know what I mean? I couldn't have picked more uh, memory-inducing locations. And and being at Brown Stadium is pretty amazing because it's like this. Um, secret excuse to really 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 get into sports and uh, <laughs> not get in trouble with my wife for it yeah yeah <laughs> well we're gonna take a quick break we're gonna talk about your wife and then we're gonna talk a lot about acid yes by that i mean vinegar <laughs> oh yes of course <laughs> you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org we'll be right back to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. 
Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here again, honored to have uh, Cleveland's own Jonathan Sawyer. Honored to be here. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, we, we were about to start talking about acid, but I also want to yeah. talk about your wife for a second. Sure. Who uh, um, I, I kind of follow religiously on her Chef's Widow blog. Um, I don't know if it's a touchy subject, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Obviously, kind of apropos name for anyone that's worked in the industry. Yeah. But the two of you are also very symbiotic. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, so, behind, I mean, that's a, it's a colloquialism, but behind every woman, there's an even better, you know, uh, even worse man <laughs> or the other way around. Yeah. I mean, we've, uh, we've been living together for over 11 years. We've known each other for over 20. And uh, she and the family are the reason why we do everything that we do, a constant source of, uh, inspiration and and really uh the the green certification and the route that we've taken with our career is directly influenced by having children you know and having this um sense of i'm not going to do i'm not going to give my kids the world my parents gave me and it may not have been just my parents it was the parents of the global but I'm going to do everything I can in the locations that I have and the address that I have to change this place. Yeah. What are some other initiatives uh, aside from just opening up new concepts that you're trying to implore into your restaurants? I mean, it's a, you know, the carbon zero is the goal and everything that we can do to get to that goal is, is, uh, is fair game and, and influence people in the neighborhood and in downtown Cleveland. Yeah. You know, before we opened it, it's, it's silly, but there was no public, Recycling within 10 blocks of the Greenhouse Tavern. Now we have three bins all available to residents above us, uh, businesses around us, and, and anybody else. You know, same thing with consolidated uh, um, biodiesel recycling. You know, there was one place that picked it up, and now after four years of seeing, you know, if you just put the tools there, the majority of people will use them. It's pretty amazing. So it's and not just sating a pallet, it's philosophical. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think sometimes restaurateurs get away from the idea of uh, how they influence someone outside of just, you know, taste. Right. Um, I mean, th- th- this is more about, you know, public opinion and uh, yeah. uh, ideas that influence food ways and systems and, and pass that. And uh, I think that's kind of tremendous. Uh, I agree. And should be a huge accolade to you and your crew. And, and you know, to end of the staff as well, who's equally as, you know, uh, important. You know, I can't tell you how many... You know, I know you guys got a lot of bicycles here in New York, but uh, we've got a lot of bicycles in the Greenhouse Tavern and Noodle Cat. You know, I think about 40% of our staff either takes public transport, their feet, or bicycles. And I think that's a pretty amazing number when you have uh, 120 employees. Yeah, and delivery know. via Noodle Cat? Uh, delivery during, yeah, bike messengers. Yeah. I mean, of course. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, I don't you... even have a car, actually, anymore. <laughs> I sold my car in June. Yeah, how close are the restaurants to each other? Uh, right around the corner. Our house is about six miles away, but I typically make it a ten mile ride and ride along the lake and just you know sort of enjoy the 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 couple moments yeah. of, of peace I have every day. So not to bring a sadness into your life, but I wanted to talk about your old house for a second because <laughs> my introduction to you was actually through our mutual. It's not even love. It's it, it's past obsession. It's a, it, we'll yeah. define it as something else later. Yeah, um, vinegars. Yes, and you used to live in century old home. Yeah. and have a cellar uh, for fermentation. A wonderful cellar. Yeah. Too. Oh my, I'm I'm tearing right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the house was built in 1864, and the original cellar was, I mean, three meters thick. Uh, uh, three meter thick old brick and stones hand hewn and dropped in to divide it in a coal chute 
root cellar, and then just regular cellar. So I used it for the past, uh, you know, two and a half years, three years almost, as our vinegar cellar. Uh, we had upwards of 500 gallons fermenting in there at any one time. Yeah. And it was such a scary basement. My wife wouldn't go down there <laughs> anyways, so I could sort of do whatever I wanted to in my evil laboratory of yeah. vinegar. Um, vinegar is a very funny thing because uh, a lot of people think of it as something that spoiled right. and went bad. But if you taste a, a wine next to a vinegar, obviously there's that acidity in vinegar, which is brighter and something that you look for in food and a flavor profile. Why do you think vinegar is kind of looked down upon? I don't know. You know, I never really even looked at it yeah. that way. I, I, I've talked, uh, you know, vinegar, I think, is one of the most important tools for your palate. You know, just equally as important as salt. I think even more so important than bitter. Um, it has this, like, uh, way to awaken everything inside of your mouth and, like, bring all of your taste buds to the forefront that I think uh, up until the past 20 years, chefs sort of just thought like a splash of lemon was enough, but there's so much more complexity in, you know, single origin, single species vinegars that uh, we're just starting to see the tip of the barrel. And I think in the late 90s, too, there was this like whole scene of like California Cabernet vinegar in a cask, you know, and it was like that, that was sort of the motivation for me because I was. I bought one of these, and I'm like, this This is $27? <laughs> like, I can buy a great California Cabernet wine for less than I can buy this vinegar for. And I, I just really struggled with it, and that was sort of why we started fermenting the way that we did. Yeah, and now you pallets, gallons. I mean, yeah. what kind of wines do you try to buy? What kind of grains do you try to ferment? Well, I mean, our whole goal, based on that disdain for overpaying for vinegar, was to get stuff that's affordable for consumers. You know, yeah, we have some insane, prestigious stuff that that will sell eventually. <laughs> oh, yeah, you tell me. What, what kind of wine bottles have you fermented? Uh, 1992 Coroti, yeah. uh, Jean-Louis Chave from uh, 99, uh, an old Burgundy, uh, God, I forget the... Uh, producer but a beautiful white burgundy um you know but those are ones actually i haven't even released yet either those are all still in barrel you're hitting three years um and i'm gonna oak them for a little while longer until i think that uh the world is ready to taste yeah them. <laughs> are those salared or are those single barrel those are single barrel now but as we're moving into the new facility that that the solera project um is a, is a reality and it's super exciting yeah. because we can see some continuity which is something we've never had before it's always been like one-offs yeah, yeah you know you get 50 cases of uh you know of rosé from provence and when it's gone it's gone and you'll never see it again yeah which i which i still love and i appreciate and we'll continue to do that way but we started purchasing wine in thousand liter bladders so we'll be able to release uh you know a couple thousand bottles as opposed to a couple hundred bottles and yeah it'll be nice to see um, with the oak sources that we have and with our partner and, uh, and friend distillers at Middle West Spirits, um, what we can create. And you say release because these are actually for sale. It's not yes. just, you know, through the restaurant. This is the, t- what, Tavern Vinegar Company. Yeah, Tavern Vinegar Company. Um, chances are we don't have it available <laughs> online right now, but it, it may very well be. We've, we sell about 550 bottles a month. 600 bottles a month, but we can't, we can't keep up right now. Um, you know, and friends of ours that jumped on early, you know, public and quality meets in Chicago and revival market in Houston, they're really, uh, they're really our first person we sell to. So whenever we have vinegar that's bottled from Tavern Vinegar Company ready to go, they really get first dips because they've been with us for a while and it's important to value those relationships. Yeah. And then and then the restaurant goes second and then uh, and then the consumers go third. So it's not all coat roti. Uh, there's been no. a couple kind of 
fizzy yellow beers uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> infused with different flavors. What are a couple of those varietals? Well, I mean, the one that we're focusing on and, and going to make our flagship is a kosher certified organic Ohio malt vinegar barrel aged. So we take uh, red winter wheat and we uh, mash it out more like a distillate, less like a beer. Uh, we we set, set all the sediment down and then we put it in barrels and we wait seven months and then we release it. Um, I you know I I messed around after you and I talked a long time with small beers and we've had a couple cool ones of those uh, of those ferments. But I mean anything that's anything that uh, you know doesn't have hops in it, I like to ferment. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about time investment because you're sure. you have these barrel age ones that are going for three years uh, yeah you know i just gave you my two-year barrel age i know it, it's it's waiting it's you know everyone's into this long-term charcuterie but why aren't people into fermenting for a year two year three years is there really a payoff in doing so i think there is i think you know we're just maybe a little bit ahead of the uh, the national curve you know and i think once people start to taste vinegars like ours you know more regularly um, I, I think we'll be able to see a sea change with consumers. And then that's the point where other people will be like, oh, well, why wasn't I fermenting vinegar for two or three years? Yeah. And it'll take them two or three years to catch up. But, uh, you know, it's exciting. And I think uh, I think a lot of people are already paying attention to fermenting. It may not be, you know, like you and I going uh, serial killer on vinegars, <laughs> but people making their own soy sauces, making their own misos, making their own koji starters. You know, I think we're starting to see those things more commonly made in the backyards and in the back kitchens of restaurants or, you know, across America. Yeah. Um, let's talk about uses for acidulation, too, because you can give someone a great vinegar and they can be like, oh, this, this is really nice. You yeah. know, I, I, I taste the acidity. But what can you do with it other than use it as like a vinaigrette? Right. I mean... What I tell people, too, it is a hard question to answer. It's like anywhere you would use a lime or a lemon, try and use vinegar. Whether it's a cocktail, whether it's uh, ceviche, whether it's fortifying a bordelaise, um, any of those uses, try the vinegar and see where it is. You know, another part of that of the tavern is we've made a decision since the beginning to try to not use lemons and limes and oranges and, you know, things that we can't grow in Ohio. So that came down to using as much vinegar as we could. A lot of recipes, we'd replace lemon or lime entirely. A lot of them, we would sort of change the ratio to be 25% vinegar, 25% citric acid. So it was fun to do in the beginning. And now, you know, four years into it, you're seeing a, a barrel-aged vinegar uh, cocktail program unveil that's really exciting, yeah. you know. So you do shrubs? We do. Yeah. Well, not true shrubs because we don't, I don't know, I think with vinegar cocktails, yeah. there's a there's a fine line between shrub and vinegar. I think shrub implies a little bit more sugar and a little yeah, bit more Yeah, it's like liquid. dosaged uh, yeah. vinegar. Yeah. And we're talking about, you know, clinical strength pH yeah. mixed with... Uh, a nerve you know, tonic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mixed with proper, you know, uh, spirits, you know. Uh, Kevin Wildermuth, our evil genius behind the bar, and I have really similar taste buds. So uh, we do this cocktail called Big in Japan, and it was one of my favorite vinegars we ever produced. And I was so amped to use it for the kitchen. It was an apricot sake vinegar. But then I tasted a cocktail that Kevin made with it, this Big in Japan, which is based on uh, a local rum and simple syrup and the sake vinegar. And I was like, all right, you can have it all. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I took all 10 gallons, uh, and they're all just for that cocktail, just for the bar. Um, another fun one is just like honey and it's Bushmills Irish honey and Baron Jaeger with a beer vinegar in it. And it's just, it's a lethal combination cause you're not really cutting it with anything except for an ice cube, Yeah, but it's a beautiful cocktail. Yeah. So people that want to start making their own vinegars, it's not just about leaving a bottle out. 
you know, uncorked and letting it ferment. Right. Um, and the vinegars you sell are live. Oh, yeah. Can you explain the difference between live and distilled vinegar? Well, live, if it, uh, if it ferments long enough, could make the bottle explode. Yeah. <laughs> well, vinegar's not yeah. something you just keep above your stove. No. You I know? mean, I would, imp- I would implore people to keep vinegars that they want, that are ours, and they're keeping it for a long time in the refrigerator. You know what I mean? Because you don't necessarily want to uh, stop the fermentation, but you also don't want it to go too far. And if you're going to hold a bottle forever, which I typically don't, yeah. but if you're a home cook and you're only using it every once in a while, you can slow down that fermentation, that action inside of the bottle, the Scooby, as they call it. Yeah. And um, you can slow it down by putting it in the refrigerator. Yeah. But like you said, you could also take any, you know, your vinegar or my vinegar that is live active, probiotic, you know, wild mother, and you can take a little bit of that and put it in what you want to ferment, put a uh, uh, cloth over top, and six months later, you should be where you want to be. Yeah, six months. See, it's just that waiting thing. I think that gets everybody, but I can tell you it's it's well worth it. Absolutely. Um, because not only with the wild yeast and live acetobacteria, yeah. it's, it's such a distinct flavor profile, and all the crap... I was going to just go on a diatribe and, uh, about yeah. oh, all the vinegars we know. Yeah, are, we should are, add caramel sugar to our vinegar and, uh, yeah. and uh, malt powder, yeah. Yeah, and none of those colors, none of those real palatable things that we think are vinegar are vinegar right? in, in my mind. I agree. I mean, distilled vinegar with caramel color doesn't make balsamic vinegar. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at balsamic. Uh, um, exactly, yeah. Are there other vinegars around the world that are of that ilk? No, I don't think so. I mean, nobody else submits their vinegar to a consortium yearly just to get a grade to be able to put a label on a bottle. Yeah. And, and not to beleaguer the fact that some of those barrels that you have inside of those barrels inside of barrels are centuries old. You know, they never throw those barrels away. So as they're going down, you know, as they're going down the row from bigger barrel to smaller barrel. And this and, is Solaris style. This is Solaris yeah. style as well, but it's... Not Sherry Solero style. It's yeah. the, the Italian version, you know, warming up in the summer, cooling down in the winter. Yeah. Angel Share is taking its, you know, toll on the vinegar, and it starts as 20 gallons, and, uh, you know, 10 years later, it's one gallon. Yeah. But as these barrels get so old, they absorb the entirety of this balsamic vinegar that a cooper comes in and builds a barrel around the old barrel, and they never throw it away, literally never throw it away. So that barrel is 100% absorbed in the balsamic vinegar over a century. Yeah. Um, another obsession of mine. Coopering? Which, oh, God. You and I should start coopering. Yeah. Well, okay. So you have black <laughs> walnut uh, in, yes. in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, how's black walnut wood for a cooperage? Uh, I think it would be awesome. I mean, that's one of the great things and one of the few fine things that balsamic producers can do different than each other. The wood isn't designated except for that it needs to be varied every year. So yeah. you could have juniper, black walnut, you know, white oak, all chestnut, those chestnuts. But, but it's local wood to yeah. them. And it's funny, you know, the barrels that a lot of people age in here are right. well, we're getting a lot more from like Bourbon County and right. uh, you know, grain distilleries. But Often you were getting, you know, French oak wine barrels or Romanian oak wine barrels in the fermenting. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, it's like getting, uh, you know, polenta from uh, Italy when I'm in Ohio, like the land of corn. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, I mean, do you want to start Cooperage? I'm, I'm down. I'll come out there. I'm, you know, I actually have a friend who has a staver. Uh, yeah. He only, you know, they're really expensive. Yeah. But he can only build three-gallon barrels. Um, yeah. But it could, be a, it could be a kicking off point. Yeah. You know. Uh, he's offered to, to take me in and show me a little bit of what he knows. He doesn't do it professionally. He just sort of inherited some equipment. He had a 53-gallon staver, but he uh, 
they sold it because it's like I said, it's a little valuable. Yeah. So we're about to wrap up. And sure. Next time you're in New York, come on back. You're welcome anytime. I would love to. Uh, which character in Major League do you think you most resemble? As a person, not not as a caricature. <laughs> oh God, uh, the surly manager. I think my voice <laughs> and his are so similar when it comes into the locker yeah. room and he kicks over the trash can. Yeah, I think that's got to be me. It's definitely not Rick Vaughn. Yeah, although I would love to say I'm a Rick Vaughn. I'm not Rick Vaughn. Yeah, please I'm not tell a me wild like, thing. Yeah, t- tell me one Halloween you've had your whole staff dress up like that movie, <laughs> or you will in the future. We will. You know, yeah. you know, we we don't have cable, so we play VHS and yeah. Major League One and Two are on the vcr at the greenhouse tavern all the time so anytime you come in and you want to see it you can see it awesome well i mean like that team like that movie uh turning a whole bunch of scrappers into something so genuine and pure uh, i think you've done that with your restaurants and for cleveland so yeah congrats on that and looking forward to getting out of ohio soon i can't wait we'll get that cooper project going fantastic you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org i'm your host michael harlan turkel hoping to have you back here next tuesday at three Cheers. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.